Okay. So I want you to close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to just think of someone in your life that's strange. Didi, close your eyes. Your eyes aren't closed. Don't look at me. Close your eyes. Could be a family member. Could be a coworker. Somebody that's just strange. If you can't think of anyone, now you can open your eyes and look around the room and try to think of someone that's, that's strange. Talk about strange, right before the service, I was downstairs getting ready and I heard a, a knock on the door. I opened the door and there was this man standing there. I mean, his eyes were like wild. His hair was disheveled like he had been sleeping under a, a bridge or something. And he looked at me and he just said, come with me. And I said, I, I'm sorry, but I can't go with you. I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm about to preach a sermon on discipleship and how it's better to be safe than sorry. And he looked at me and said, Peter, come with me. And I said, how do you know my name and where are you going? He said, I'm going to a place where they throw wild parties for prodigal boys. I'm going to a place where beggars and peasant girls and servant girls, slave, they eat at the king's table. And, and, and he looked at this guy, and uh, this homeless guy, looked like he'd been living, or it looked like he had no place to lay his head. I look at him and I say, impossible, there's no such place. And he said, yeah, there is said, I'm going to a place, I'm going to a field. Peter, I'm going to a field with treasure buried in that field, treasure that's more valuable than all the money in the world, and I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me and help me dig it up. And I said, no way. And he said, Yahweh. And so I shut the door. Strangest man I ever met, strangest thing I ever heard, and then even stranger still, he had these like 12 guys with him. <laughs> anyway, okay, uh, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that everyone would know that I'm kidding, and yet I'm not kidding at all. Lord God, this world is a strange place. In fact, the longer I'm here, the stranger it gets. Lord, would you help us to see you and to follow you wherever you might lead us? Help us now, Lord God, to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. That means it's Passover time or Easter time. And when he had seized him, he, he put him in prison, put Peter in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover, they'd bring him out to the people, like Pilate brought Jesus out to the people on Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. 
and the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And the angel said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel. He did not know that it was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. Peter doesn't know if this is real or not. He thinks he may be crazy. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. In other words, maybe I'm not crazy. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying, earnestly praying for his release, remember? And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's, recognizing Peter's voice, in, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. The King James reads like this, thou art mad. <laughs> Mene is the word in Greek, or mani. It's where we get our word maniac. They're saying, you're insane, Rhoda, you're nuts, you're crazy. How do you know if someone's crazy. Before I could be ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, I had to take a psychological test, the Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory, the MMPI, to see if I was fit for ministry or just plain crazy. It was about 1985 and I felt crazy. I was going to school full-time and I was working at Bel Air Presbyterian Church part-time, but it was really full-time being a, a youth pastor. Well, this young grad student in the psychology program, she gave me the questionnaire and she said, look, you can take it home and you can fill it out and you can mail it in to me for analysis. And, and so I, I did. I took it late one night in a very foul mood after finals, the night before we were to get up early and drive back to Colorado for Christmas break. There were questions like this. Do you hear voices? And I checked, no. I remember this question. Do you like fire? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course. Where would we be without fire? And then there was this question. Do you think that there are people out to get you? And I checked, yes, I know who they are. I can name them. They don't like me. They want my job at, at, at church. And then this question. Do you believe there is a devil who hates your soul? And I'm like, yeah, I checked it. And I remember thinking this. I remember literally thinking to myself, I remember thinking, dang, if anybody took these tests seriously, they'd think I was crazy. I mailed it in, went on vacation. Upon return, I met with a young grad student in the psychology department that administered the test. I met with her in order that she could have a personality, uh, a personal interview with me and, and analyze me and send her conclusions to the folks at the presbytery who would decide whether or not I would be ordained. I remember I was in this great mood because I'm, it's after vacation, I had just worked out, I was feeling relaxed and rested and trusting. And she started asking me all these questions about myself and I was like, this is so great, someone that really just cares about me. We were just going along fine. And then she said, Peter, do you do drugs? I said, no, I, I don't do drugs. She said, Peter, are you addicted to alcohol? I said, well, I, 
really like beer, and sometimes I think I, I drink too much of it, but, but no, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. She said, Peter, do beat your wife. And I said, no, I don't beat my wife. And she said, well, you must have some way that you express your anger. Do you like violent sports? And immediately I thought of backpacking, playing football after church and uh, with my friends, and, and this is exactly what I said to her. I said, oh yeah! In fact, the more cuts and bruises I get, the better I feel. And at that she stopped. She leaned forward and she said, Peter, this is going to be hard for you to hear because you don't have any presenting issues, but you need to trust me. You have very serious psychological problems. She said, you have a personality disorder. I, I don't know whether it's paranoid or passive aggressive, but unless you get extensive psychological help, your ministry will be a disaster and your marriage will fall apart in a year. I said, oh, oh, oh my gosh, that's, that's, really, that's, really, that's really serious. And she said, see, you're being paranoid. So, so I tried to just kind of relax like it was no big deal, but then I started thinking about it and getting agitated, and I said, but, 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 but this report go, goes, goes to the presbytery, right? And the presbytery decides whether or not I'll be ordained or, or not ordained, and this is my life. This is why I came to Calvary. See, you're being passive aggressive. And I was trapped, trapped by the powers that be, certifiably insane. I mean, I literally had a certificate. Crazy, crazy. How do we know who's crazy and who's not crazy? Maybe she was crazy. Now, there really are people who lose touch with reason. In fact, in the next paragraph, we'll look at it in two weeks, King Herod loses touch with reason. And psychological tests can be very helpful, so I'm certainly not dis discounting it. There are people who lose touch with reason and logic, but who those people are and what or who the logic is, well, that may not be so obvious. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And the truth was standing right in front of him. You know, I think if you pay close attention, you'll, you'll find that sanity is often defined as the psychological state of those in power. So the king is very rarely insane until, of course, he's deposed or, or dies. King Herod thinks Peter, James, and the early church are insane. In Acts 26, the Roman governor Festus, who followed uh, Pilate along with uh, the Jewish King Herod, they accused Paul of being insane. Mani, the very same word they use for Rhoda, you're a maniac, Paul. John 10, the Jewish leaders accused, accused Jesus of being saying, Mani, a, a maniac, just, you're like Rhoda, a maniac. In our country, we have a political system wherein the king is the person who gets the votes of the most people in the crowd, or at least that's the idea, right? And so, sanity is defined as the mental state of the majority. In other words, sanity is defined as the normal. Our society, in our society, sanity is faith in the opinion of the crowd and the person uh, that the crowd holds in authority. That is the person that the crowd idolizes. In other words, sanity is faith in the principalities and powers of this present age. 
or what the Bible might call the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. So often in, in our world, we think the sane are the people who exercise power, and the insane are the weak. The sane is the ruling caste, and the insane are the outcasts. The sane are the first, and the insane are the last. The sane are the normal, and the abnormal are insane. But, but what if the normal are insane? Growing up, I had a cousin who people thought was a bit insane. He wasn't like the rest of the family. I'll call him Gary. He had these wild eyes and his hair was always disheveled as if he had been sleeping under a bridge and he probably had. He, he heard voices. He wandered the streets of Denver when he wasn't in lockdown at Fort Logan Mental Health Center. So when Gary spoke, people often didn't listen. I have a friend I'll call Karen. She came to me years ago with the craziest stories, and while I'd be talking to her, I'd suddenly realize I'm talking to another person, her personality. Her personality would just split into several different persons. And, and years ago, some of the voices weren't just persons, but, but demons. It, it was crazy, and people often did not listen to her. For years now, another particular woman has approached me in awkward situations and says, God wants you to read such and such a, a Bible verse, and she'll just give me a, a Bible verse, and I'll ask, what does it say? And she'll say, I don't know. I don't know what it says. She's not a Bible student, hasn't been to seminary, barely reads it herself, and at times I've wondered if she's insane. She's definitely strange. Well, anyway, people in our society often don't listen to the strange and judge them as insane, and sadly, people in church aren't all that much different. King Herod thought Peter and the gospel were insane. Then the church leaders thought that Rhoda and her good news from the door was insane. Acts 12, verse 12, he, Peter, went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Remember, they're praying earnestly for Peter's release. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're mad. You're out of your mind. You know, grace, if you think about it, I think grace will always sound a little bit like, like Rhoda. Because grace is wonderfully good news that no one is qualified to hear. Seminary does not qualify you for grace. Elected office by the majority of the people in your society does not qualify you for grace. The Minnesota multifaceted personality inventory does not qualify you for grace. All the, the good works and cogent thought in this world does not qualify you for grace. Rhoda is a servant girl, possibly a slave. She has not been to seminary. She never held elected office. We don't know how she'd do on the MMPI. And she says to the leaders of the early church, Peter is standing at the door, and they say, Rhoda, Rhoda, dear, you're hearing voices. They're thinking, surely would not, God, would, God would not hide this from the wise and reveal it to babes like Rhoda. She probably can't even read. And on top of everything else, she's a woman, a girl. You know what they're like. Amen? They say, Rhoda, dear, sweetheart, this is an idle tale. 
Now that should sound familiar. In Luke's first version, and remember Luke and Acts originally were just one and two versions, just a few chapters before this, he records that it was some women who first went to the tomb on Easter morning and then reported that Jesus was no longer dead, no longer Im imprisoned in Sheol, and, and uh, this is what happened. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they, the apostles, did not believe them. An idle tale, foolish. You remember Mary Magdalene had had seven demons. I mean, but that had been pretty crazy. An idle tale, foolish. An idle tale until Jesus shows up and basically says, guys, these strange women are right. Now, go into all the world and proclaim the good news. You know just the way that these foolish women, they just proclaimed it to you. To preach the gospel, you must be a fool. That is, you must have faith in grace. Knowledge of grace is not like taking knowledge of good and evil from a tree. Knowledge of grace is a gift given to fools at a tree. They say, Rhoda, you're, you're out of your mind. You're foolish. You're, you're nuts, Acts 12, 15. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, well, it's, it's his angel. Do you get that? They're ready to believe that it's Peter's angel at the gate, but not Peter having been released by angels. Why the first and not the second? Well, maybe because they thought it up and they determined what's normal. Now, this whole time that they're arguing with Rhoda, Peter keeps knocking at the door. Peter must be thinking to himself, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. He said, I'm out of here. Now you guys deliver this message to others just like Rhoda delivered it to you. In other words, if you want to preach the good news, you're, you're going to look foolish because grace is not dependent upon your accomplishments and qualifications. You're going to look foolish because the whole world is foolish and the whole world thinks it's wise. Grace is foolish to people that believe the lie that they have created themselves with the knowledge of good and evil. But grace is the very logic of a world that is created out of nothing by God. The very logic, the very logos, well, you're going to look foolish because the gospel is a joke. The gospel is a joke upon this entire fallen world and the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. Rhoda is a joke like the gospel is a joke. Not because she's untrue, but because the world is untrue. Not because she's insane, but because the whole world is insane. And, and whenever a church buys into the way of the world and seeks respect from the principles and powers of the world, it becomes untrue, and it becomes insane as well. Easter is a joke upon the principles and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. It's a joke on Herod the king. It's even a joke on the church. It's a joke at the expense of all self-righteous, arrogant pomposity. And who gets that joke? Who laughs at that joke? 
the poor, the weak, the disenfranchised, the powerless, the, the women, the slaves, uh, uh, those for whom this world has not worked, uh, the last and the least. These people get the They know the truth. They inherit the earth, and the truth sets them free. So to get the joke, you can't take yourself or this world too seriously. But if you're the king of the world, or you're the king of your own world, like King Herod, and you read about him in a paragraph, or maybe an awful lot of Americans, wealthy and powerful Americans like me, well, if you think you're the king of the world, well, it's pretty hard to not take yourself seriously and get the joke. Years ago, Susan and I visited Henry VIII's Hampton Court Palace in London. And one of the guards explained to us that each king, each king had a court jester, the, the joker. And the joker would live off of the scraps from the king's table. And yet, the joker could say anything that he wanted to to the king, and the king could not lift a finger in opposition. The idea was that a Christian king should be able to take a joke, take a fool. The idea was that a Christian king needed humility. He needed his suppositions questioned in order to be sane. I heard Dan Allender say at one of our church camps years ago that in medieval times, they used to take people that they deemed crazy or mad, and they'd put them on a ship, and then they'd sail the ship out to sea. That's the origin of the term ship of fools. At every port, the, the, the fools were welcomed into the port, and, and people would line up in order to board the ship of fools. For it was believed that the fools had insight into mysteries unknown and that they would challenge suppositions and give people new insights. St. Paul wrote this, but God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no flesh might boast in the presence of God. In, 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 in other words, the church of Jesus Christ is God's ship of fools. Visiting the ports of this world, she's a, a ship of fools unless she's seduced by the world, becoming like the world, a ship of fools trying to be a ship of kings. You know, I think we're all tempted to make ourselves the king of everything, including the truth. And maybe that's insanity. We're all tempted to make ourselves the king, and so it's the grace of God to send each one of us a fool a court jester. So who's your court jester? Who's your fool? Who has God called to enter the arrogant throne room of your heart and question your assumptions and suppositions? Who is it that questions uh, your uh, idea that you are a self-made man or a self-made woman and reminds you that you are but dust, but dust, but dust? What is that a con I don't know, but just dust and breath, grace. Who's your court jester? Who's your Rhoda? 
See, maybe it's that person that you thought of at the start of the service. The person you judged as strange, a bit nuts, or, or even last and least. Now, listen very closely. I'm not saying that that person is sane. They could be mostly insane. I'm not saying that that person is entirely right. They're probably mostly wrong, mostly dirt, mostly field. You know, each one of us is like a field, and Jesus told a story about this, we're like a field that contains buried treasure, a lot of dirt and a little treasure buried in, in the dirt. We're, we're like dust that contains the breath of God, an earthen vessel that contains breath, and yet can be entirely filled with the Spirit. But even so, there's plenty of dirt, even in most Spirit-filled vessels. Remember, Jesus turned to Peter at one point. Peter right after he had the like, greatest proclamation in the Bible, and he said, get behind me, Satan. And even after Peter was filled with the Spirit on Pentecost, remember, he gets, uh, he gets rebuked by St. Paul for being so dirty to the Gentiles. So anyway, Rhoda spoke the truth, but you know, Rhoda wasn't right about everything. She may have been rather cantankerous, rather unrefined. Rhoda means rose in Greek, and I bet she had like a, a whole lot of thorns, but you really ought to listen to Rhoda because she may contain the answer to your most earnest prayer. And for some reason, God has arranged it that way on purpose. So my point is, number one, listen to Rhoda because... Grace looks like Rhoda. And number two, although it can be humiliating, listen to Rhoda because that's how we learn, how we grow, how we begin to follow. If you think you've arrived, know the truth, and thus have all the answers, you, you don't need to grow, right? And nothing is strange. A, a lot of so-called Christians think that's what it is to be a Christian. It, it means to have arrived, when in reality it means just having set out on a journey. We, we haven't arrived at truth. Truth just knocked on our door and said, follow me. We, don't, uh, we haven't arrived at truth so much as just started to follow truth. We're disciples, followers, learners. We're going someplace that we haven't been very before, and, and well, that's, that's strange. A few years ago in a freshman physics class at Duke University, a young male physics professor showed up, male physics professor showed up in a, in a red dress with red pumps and a, and a red purse in his hand. He proceeded uh, to lecture. He lectured uh, the class for 40 minutes until one student finally raised his hand and said, Prof, what's with the dress? And the professor said, oh, thank you. At last, I'm so glad that Somebody asked, I'm trying to make a point. You see, in the last several decades, there haven't been any new discoveries in physics. I think that's because we're attracting the kind of students that think we have it all figured out. We have it all explained. We have it all defined. So nothing is strange. And people like that don't make new discoveries. We need people that expect the unexpected. I think that's true in physics. I think that's true in theology. It's definitely true in life. We, we, we like to think that we have all the answers, explanations, and, and definitions. So we don't expect the unexpected, and we do our best to ignore the strange. We tune it out, and in that way, we build dungeons for our souls and never go anywhere. 
few weeks ago, I led the funeral service for our friend Dan Kruger, who died in an accident on May 23rd. At the service, we played a clip of a sermon that Dan preached here at the sanctuary four years ago. In it, he spoke about the way in which our old self constantly makes judgments of our environment. He called that self the chatterbox, and this is what he said. According to the chatterbox, goodness is determined by familiarity. Truthfulness is determined by whether or not you're comfortable with it, whether or not you've encountered it before. So if it's new, it's suspicious. If it's not instantly understandable, it's probably wrong. See, here's the problem with that. What does that turn today into? If you and I are operating on automatic, if we're just being operated by the chatterbox, what does it want to turn today into? An instantly understandable variation of yesterday. See, I've been thinking about this for years. If I'm being operated by my chatterbox, then today is going to look about like yesterday, it's going to look about like the day before that, it's going to look about like the day before that, and tomorrow is going to look about like today, and the day after tomorrow is going to look about like tomorrow. My script is written. It doesn't want anything new. And this is kind of the hard part of the sermon for me, is kind of getting my mind around that. See, if nothing new is going to happen, what's the difference between that and being dead? So on May 23rd, Dan died. Or I should say he died to death. He heard knocking at the door, and Truth was standing at his door. If Dan desired his own reality more than truth, he might have run from truth and hid in the outer darkness, which is an instantly understandable variation of yesterday. But I'm convinced that Dan loved the truth more than his own life, and so May 23rd was absolutely not an instantly understandable variation of yesterday, but instead, on May 23rd, Dan crossed the Jordan, and everything is new. Marisa is new. You are new. We are all new. All creation is new. Everything is grace. On May 23rd, Dan Kruger began to truly live, and eternal life is always new. If you hate the new, maybe you'll hate eternal life. You see, one day you will literally see the truth standing at your door. And yet every day he is knocking at your door in preparation for the day that you both step through that door together. Every day he shows, he shows up in people like, like Rhoda, people in this room, even Dan Kruger. Dan used to say to me after church all the time, he'd say, you know what, Peter? Everything really is grace. It's all grace. Everything is grace, Dan would say. But that wasn't just Dan talking to me. We're not just discovering truths like in physics. We're being discovered by the truth 
who is a person. In other words, we only discover the truth because he chooses to be discovered. And get this, he chooses to be discovered, that is revealed, in and through people like Rhoda. Why is that silly story in the Bible? He chose Rhoda to go to the door. He chose Rhoda, not the emperor, not James, not John, not Andrew, not the seminary president. He chose Rhoda. Several years ago, I went to a family dinner with my crazy cousin Gary, and I say that because that's what Gary called himself. Peter, I'm your crazy cousin Gary, and I'm the sane one. Why am I the sane one? Because I have a Master of Divinity degree, as if like, that's not crazy at all, Master in Divinity. Well, out of all my cousins, Gary may be the craziest, but he's also the sweetest. At dinner, while everyone was talking, I remember he leaned over to me at one point and, and he said, hey, Pete, did I ever tell you what really changed me? And I, I said, no. He told me how years ago he was staying down on Colfax in a fog. He said, I, I thought I was going to die. I was thinking about that survival of the fittest thing. And I thought to myself, I am the least fit to survive. And, and then I just prayed, oh, God, please help me survive. And I looked up, and Pete, right in front of me, I saw one of those storefront churches. I, I stumbled through this door, and this guy introduced me to Jesus. And then he got this wild look in his eye. His hair was all disheveled, like he'd been sleeping under a bridge or something. He leaned forward like he wanted me to come with him, like he was telling me about buried treasure in some field somewhere. And he whispered so that no one else would hear. He said, hey, Pete, I still hear voices. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah, but they're good. They say, Gary, trust Jesus. Gary, follow Jesus. Love Jesus. You see, I think my crazy cousin Gary was let out of prison by the Lord and led around by angels. Or to you, does that seem like an idle tale? I told you about my friend Karen. That's not a real name. Karen, who's got all the personalities and no more demons as far as I can tell. She lives in another state, has a bunch of health problems, and gets angry rather easily from damage that's been done to her brain. And so people don't listen to her much of the time. Well, one evening, about eight years ago, when my life was literally falling apart and I just wanted to die, I'm sitting in my office at Lookout when I got this call. It was Karen. I hadn't talked to her for years, and she said, Peter, are you okay? Um, and I said, well, well yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay. She said, well, every night I've been woken up by God in the middle of the night with a picture of you hanging on a cross. What's going on? And so I told her. And then she prayed this prayer, the most cogent, beautiful, deep, and profound prayer that may have ever heard or received in all my life. She's dealing with loads of dirt. And so when I talk to her, I expect dirt. And so I don't take everything that she says to heart. But when she says, let's pray, I've learned to always say, yes. And then sometimes, actually maybe all the time or most of the time, it's like I'm getting a call from Jesus in California. I think I've learned the most of Jesus from the woman who gives me the Bible verses at awkward moments and in such a bizarre way. 
I think I'm married to, to Rhoda. I started dating her, Susan, because I thought she was just the hottest thing at Heritage High School, but she didn't go to church. She didn't refer to herself as a, as a Christian, so I considered her to be my disciple. And I was always concerned that she didn't have her quiet time and she wasn't studying the Bible. I think that's why Jesus seems to get such a kick out of revealing stuff to her that she's then to pass on to, to me. It, it happens about every eight months or so. She'll say something like this. This is the last time it happened. She said, Peter, God wants you to read Psalm 23. Or no, Job 23. And, and I say, well, uh, okay. Uh, then I read it, and then I say something like this. That was exactly what I needed. Be honest, Susan. Be honest with me. You, you knew that was in Job 23, right? And she'll say, no, Peter. You know me. I don't read the Bible. And that's not totally true. She reads the Bible some, but I know she doesn't read it enough to go find what was in Job 23. You see, I think she's Rhoda. It's very important that you don't simply believe anyone that says to you, God says whatever, you're supposed to test it all, but it's also very important that you don't disbelieve. So you're just getting my point here, listen to Rhoda. If a person confesses Jesus is Lord, we know that God's Spirit is with that person. Even if they don't confess that, they are still the breath of God in dust, and, and the Word of God loves to be spoken from the strangest places. You realize that uh, Daniel 4 is written largely by Nebuchadnezzar, the king who led Israel away and destroyed uh, the temple. He writes one of the most beautiful songs in all of Scripture. 2 Chronicles 35, 22, God speaks prophetically to Josiah, king of Judah, through Necho, the pharaoh of Egypt. Numbers 22, God speaks through Balaam's ass, referring to his donkey. But of course, I think he could probably speak through, through any ass. John 11, God prophetically proclaims the gospel through Caiaphas, the high priest, who then delivers Jesus up for crucifixion. And most of the New Testament was written by a radicalized religious terrorist who spent a lot of time in Syria named Saul of Tarsus, who would have been the absolute last person that the early church would have wanted to listen to. So I'm saying pay attention to Rhoda. Pay attention to that person that you think is a bit strange and possibly insane. So if you're a Baptist, pay attention to Catholics. If you're a Catholic, pay attention to Baptists. If you're one of those weird prophetic types, pay attention to Bible scholars. If you're a Bible scholar, pay attention to those weird prophetic types. If you're a Republican, listen to a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, listen to a Republican. If you're a cop, listen to that scary young black man. If you're a black man, listen to that scary white cop. If you're Peter, listen to Rhoda. If you're Rhoda, listen to Peter. If you're a shrink, listen to a pastor. If you're a pastor, listen to a shrink. I don't know the name of that young lady who gave me the MMPI, but it wouldn't surprise me if her name was Rhoda. <laughs> At the time, I thought she was nuts. And, and well, I actually, I, I believed her a bit, and it really stressed me out. But, and I still think she is largely, largely, she may have been largely nuts, and yet I know God was speaking. Friends paid for me to take the test over again. I remember this psychologist saying, listen, Peter, if they ask you, you know, know what they're asking, answer it correctly. But I took the test over again, and they decided that it was a misdiagnosis, but I have decided that it was the perfect prescription because I was way too stressed out. 
I was at least a bit paranoid and a bit passive-aggressive, and Jesus wanted me to trust His judgment of me, and not the world's judgment of me, or not my own judgment of me, but His judgment of me. So listen, listen to Rhoda, because number one, grace looks like Rhoda. Number two, it's how we learn and grow and follow. Number three, it's a lot more fun. You know, the kingdom of God is a party, but if you go to a party where everybody is just the same, well, that's no party. That's not a party. A good party has a whole lot of really strange people, and yet it is like Jim Morrison saying, uh, people are strange when you're a stranger. So choose not to be a stranger, and strangers turn into the funnest of all friends. And listen to Rhoda, because number four, Rhoda is worth it. So even if Rhoda has nothing to say, even if Rhoda is thoroughly deluded, listen to Rhoda because Jesus chooses to dwell in crazy Rhoda. Jesus is crazy for crazy Rhoda, and He wants you to be crazy for crazy Rhoda too. So in the end, what Rhoda says doesn't really matter as much as your willingness to listen to Rhoda. If you have all knowledge so that you do not need the information that Rhoda has to give, but you don't love Rhoda, and so don't listen to Rhoda, you're nothing, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So listen to Rhoda, because number five, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is the logos. He's the logic. That means the reason or the sanity. Jesus is sanity, but when Jesus walked this earth in a physical body, at some point, everyone judged him insane and refused to listen. But you know, he's still walking this earth in his body. The church. As of yet, it's not a very obedient body. <laughs> and yet, it's still his body. There's a lot of dirt covering the treasure, but there's still treasure. Kind of like there's a whole lot of manger and not much baby, <laughs> a little dinky baby, but still a baby. And if you are a wise man, you will seek him. So on the night that the truth was betrayed, he took bread saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. This is sanity. This is the truth. This is the treasure. This is the king's table. And now watch. You're going to see a bunch of dirt bags come to the king's table, take a piece of the treasure, and bury it in their field believe the gospel, and you will listen to Rhoda. Amen? Did you realize that basically every church program we have is just a contrived strategic manipulation to get you to listen to Rhoda? 
I mean, seriously, classes, whatever, all the, it's basically to get you to find the treasure buried in the field next to you. But, but if the government were to outlaw Christianity and raise the church building, well, you could still listen to Rhoda, and we would still be the church. That's what the, the church is. And, and one last thing, because of the events of this last week, if you're a cop and you're stressed out by scary young black men, Rhoda is a black man. If you're a black man and you're stressed out by scary cops, Rhoda is a cop. This week, uh, watching the news was a bit terrifying. And last, yesterday afternoon, I was sitting in my office uh, thinking about Dallas and the policemen that were shot in Dallas, and I thought, gosh, I wish we could pray over a policeman that's part of the church. Do we have any policemen at our church that we could have stand up and we could, we could together pray over them representing all policemen? And I thought, well, yeah, there's, there's Cooper. And then I thought of the horrible videotapes I had seen from Minnesota and Louisiana of the police shooting those two black men. I thought, gosh, I wish there was like a a young black man that we could pray over, representing all the black men in our country. And then I thought of Issa. <laughs> and so I called Cooper and Issa and asked if they'd come up here and stand in, and we could pray for them, and then I'm going to ask them to pray. This is, uh, this is Cooper Grimes, and this is Issa Grimes. And if I were to be arrested, I would want to be arrested by Cooper. And if I want to hang out with anybody, I'd most want to hang out with Issa. Issa's just an incredible guy, been part of our church. But well, the Grimes have been part of our church all along. And so, would it, is it, you said this was cool, but I'd like to just pray over the two of you. And if all of you, maybe you could hold hands with the person next to you, okay? And then I'll pass you the microphone. You can just hold it, Isa. And then you guys uh, offer your prayers as well, and then I'll close the service, okay? Because I'm getting feedback, let's walk further to the front here. So, all right. Lord God, uh, I want to thank you so very much for Isa and Cooper. Father, you know what we need, and... I think everybody's clamoring for better policies, better legislation, better policing, better systems, and Lord God, I imagine there are some systems that will help, but none of them will fix this. None of them have the power to create us in your image. But Lord God, you do, and so this is what I want to pray, and this is what I was thinking of. Cooper and, and Issa, I pray that every white police officer would look at every black man the way Cooper looks at his son Issa, because I've seen it happen. He sees you in Issa. And Lord God, I pray that every young black man could look at every old white police officer, even, you're not that old, Cooper, but could look at that white police officer and, and look, at, look at that person the way Issa looks at his dad and sees you in his dad. 
And then, Lord God, I pray that each of us could look at every other person that way, knowing that there's a lot of dirt, but there's treasure buried in there. And, Lord God, those new eyes, that new heart, your spirit in us, that's what will change the world. So, God, that's our, uh, our prayer this morning. Lord, hear our prayers. Um, dear God, um, I come before you in all of this chaos and um, all of this hurt and this pain that's occurring in uh, Dallas, Baton Rouge, and Minnesota, Lord. Um, and I pray for all those families um, and just the struggle that's there um, and how people feel there's a lack of freedom, but really it's just a lack of love um, and not um, there's no understanding. Um, and I pray that people will listen um, to each other, Lord, um, and uh, I pray for both um, the, all the, the black community um, and the white community and police officers and not see it as um, the hunter and the hunted, um, but that we are all human and that we are all broken. Um, and. Uh, uh, I pray for my dad, Lord, and I pray that you you keep him safe, um, and that all that he he wants to do is protect um, people, and that's really all police officers want to do. Um, they just want to protect people, and I'm sorry for the situations that have occurred that um, have brought controversy in that. Um, yeah. Well, God, I thank you for your kindness and your love and Peter's desire to uh, reach out to you and speak to you, uh, over us and the church as well. We thank you for that. And Lord, we're just a representation of these communities. And, um, I pray for them on the larger scale that there's so much hurt in other places. That's so much greater than we've experienced in our lives. Um, please be with the, the young black men and give them a hope that uh, give them opportunity and give them hope. And I thank you for the opportunities that Issa's had. And I, I pray favor for him and those who he comes across and help us all to just act favorably toward one another. And uh, Lord, as the Downside Up video started and it talked about shall, that good things shall come. Um, I'm so grateful for that and I'm so hopeful. and. I confess, Lord, that I sit there and scratch my head off and going, yeah, but what about now? Where are you? And, and how do you show up? And um, even in Peter's sermon, you've already reassured me that you're there and you're, you're just acting in a way that may not be the way that I would intend or expect. So, Lord, I just ask you to come. Come to the situation. Be with all of us, um, these communities, individuals, and uh, help us to see you, since I'm sure you are there. Maybe it's more of that. Help take the blinders off my eyes so that you see, I can see where you are in these situations. Um, and one other thing, Lord, I just, for some reason on my heart has been almost a mix. Uh, be with the, the black officers, because I often sit and wonder with the polarization um, if they're feeling torn 
to take one side or another. And Lord, just come in into that and help us all to uh, find common ground instead of polarizing and um, clamoring for knowledge, Lord. Just offer these prayers up to you. So Lord God, we thank you that your plan for the fullness of time is to unite under one head all things in Christ Jesus. And God, I think that means that we're supposed to look around and see everybody else as family. Jesus, uh, thank you that you've called us to speak that news to the world. And so, Lord God, we pray that um, we would do that with every breath that we take. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, say thanks to Cooper and Issa. I said, this is kind of weird, but if you guys did this, I think it'd be cool. So, thanks, you guys. And if, and if you want to talk to Cooper and Issa, you said you'd hang out for a little bit, too, or whatever, but give them a hug. And listen, have a, a great day, and listen to Rhoda. Amen? Mm -hmm. Thank mm -hmm. you.